or you're trying to regulate steam coming out of the top of that locomotive, or are you actually really regulating individual sectors? Should it be for the banking regulators to offer particular advice as to how AI and advanced analytic are used within that particular sector? Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, a podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. Today, we're talking with Tony Bubier. Tony is a consultant, mentor, author, and advisor, and subject matter expert on AI in the financial services industry. He's the author of four books and has nearly four decades of experience working in various roles, most recently as a consultant to both startup and incumbent businesses alike. Tony uniquely brings special expertise qualified in engineering, insurance, supply chain, management and marketing to provide strong and broad-based insight to many industries and professions, but especially financial services. We're really looking forward to today's conversation, so let's get on with it. Welcome, Tony. Great to have you with us today. Can you give us a quick intro about you and what you do? My name is Tony Bubier. I'm the author of four books, particularly around AI and financial services. I've written those books with a background of about 40 years of experience in almost all parts of the world. Nowadays, I spend my time as an independent advisor, consultant, mentor. My days are normally spent a third of the year traveling, a third of the year writing, and a third of the year supporting individuals and companies. So it's a great life. I really enjoy the balance. Fabulous. Okay. So from a career perspective, how did you get started and how did you end up here? The, the podcast I've listened to from you guys, uh, it always starts with a giggle. You know, how did I get here? And my story, <laughs> I trained as a civil engineer and I was taught how to build structures, but I was more interested in how they fell down, which of course took me into the world of insurance. As if something falls down, it's defective materials, design or workmanship. Insurance is heavily data orientated. So I really got the data bug, but things were really primitive. The most advanced things we were doing were on Excel. And the cleverest guy in the office had a nickname of Pivot because he was the only guy that could <laughs> work a pivot table. You know, we began to see insight from, from data that took me into the world of location analytics because of everything and everybody is someone. So the idea of being able to geographically position those and put a data hook onto it was very interesting. Took me into mainstream data, into predictive, into advanced analytics and ultimately into AI. So in many ways, it, my life has been a, quite a data journey, really. That is quite a journey. What were you planning on doing when you left school? You know, because yeah. I'm not, I'm guessing this wasn't the career path you were planning. Well, well, you know, Matthew, the funny thing about most people's careers is that you can sit here today and, and look back and you can say, hey, you know, that was a logical step or I can see the path. But when you're 18 or 20 or whatever, it's not always clear as to how it's going to be. I guess I wanted to be a goalkeeper, but, or maybe a rock guitarist or the lead singer in a band or whatever. Think you and me both. I think you and me both. I'm likely to be nowadays is, is a band of grandpas, really. Yeah, I never really imagined a world which started off having my, my feet, my Wellingtons in, in, in mud on a, on a dirty construction site and a, and a career which took me all the way through to being recognized by some as being a, being a thought leader in the AI industry, really. So it's been cool. It's been cool. Yeah, absolutely. So then looking back, Tony, what would you say has been your career defining moment? <laughs> My wife will bless me for this, but you know, I, I, I didn't have any brothers or sisters, so I was always quite content with my own company and a little shy when I was younger. I definitely would never have thought about standing on a stage and, and talking or let alone doing a podcast. But my wife is a teacher, uh, a language teacher, and I, I watched her one day uh, in, a, in a classroom teaching using something called brain-friendly learning. And brain-friendly learning is principally all about how do you connect with individual in the way that they want to connect with you. And it can either be by voice, for example, through this podcast or through visualization, or sometimes really the way you move. And, and that opened the door to me thinking how you could communicate technical issues and engineering issues and insurance issues uh, in a different sort of way, principally using visualization. So that for me somehow unlocked 
a way forward of communicating. And I guess the breakthrough moment, of course, was when I was actually stopped on the tube on, on the London Underground and somebody said, hey, aren't you the guy who did that lecture involving the fruit cocktail? And, you know, kind of that, you know, that's just sort of recognition, then I guess that's something, isn't it? So defining moment, what should my well, wife teach? Oh, there you go. Oh, that's, that's a, actually, that's a fabulous one. So uh, what would you say then has been your proudest moment from a professional perspective? I mean, that's also a tricky one. Long, long time ago, I decided to keep a diary of notable events, a scrapbook. And that scrapbook started, gosh, probably 40 years ago with the first time I actually did some public writing, which was during a write-up for a pop concert by Duran Duran in the, in the local rag, which got published. So that was kind of a starting point, but all the way through my career, I've kept notes and programs and event. Top moments. Gee, it was really cool publishing my first book. I was really yeah. pleased about that. I then wanted to get my hat trick, so I was keen to get three books out. I've now published a fourth, which was my lockdown project, and I'm currently getting my head around a fifth one, but that's a little bit harder. So anyway, you know, kind of <laughs> not one single moment, but just kind of bags of them and and that's what's made both life and career really interesting. Fabulous. Fabulous. You can always get ChatGPT to help you on that fifth one. <laughs> I can. You know, I have had a look. And uh, am I interested? I don't know. I'm, I'm, the jury, I think, is still out on that one. Maybe, maybe no okay. more than a fancy, right. a fancy search engine. But yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. We, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe more on that later. So that fabulous. Thanks. Thanks for that, Tony. Let's move into our deep dive. Ben and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. So, Tony, the world of AI gained some attention from the media. It seems to be you can't wake up any morning without yet another kind of AI story. Maybe it's doom gloom. Maybe it's maybe it's otherwise. Obviously, some of it some of it's good for clicking links, and some of it's actually informative. What's your take on where we are now? Well, I won't be the first person to say that I think the AI story is being overhyped. Most people who are actually in the industry will recognize that many of the tech developments are really forms of advanced analytics and rather clever apps rather than really what I would describe as being pure AI. And pure AI takes you back really to early days of Turing tests and can we actually really identify whether we're dealing with an individual or with a, with a computer. But I must admit that over the past few days, I've been thinking a little more about the whole concept of, of the Turing test, which was created for a different time, a different society. And now, of course, people are increasingly getting concerned about AI, particularly in the political arena, where it's becoming impossible to be, or more difficult, shall I say, to be certain whether the, the face and the voice which we are hearing is actually from the original person or whether it's being artificially created. So maybe the whole concept of, of Turing just needs to be reviewed. All that aside, there is a lot of hype around AI. When my books were, were published, the publisher was very keen on ensuring the, the words AI in the title because it was one of the hooks in terms of people looking them up and trying to understand the content. But you have to, of course, ask yourself, why all the hype? Who is driving all this hype? Of course, there's a lot of fear around the whole topic. You know, people kind of envisage a world of data-driven decisions as being very dystopian, really. They're, they're frightened by what they've seen in 1984 and what they learned from Hollywood. And there is an element of that, of course. But a lot of the hype particularly has been driven, I think, by people with a vested interest, particularly large organizations who are trying to drive stockholder value, small organizations that are trying to establish a, a niche in the market. And maybe also, you know, dare I say it, the media who are keen to identify what is the, the buzzword of the moment. And AI seems to be one of those buzzwords. And therefore, you know, put the expression AI into a title and it almost becomes clickbait, really. So I'm a little, I'm a little cynical, shall we say. Okay. All right. Well, so, so I think I'm sure we'll come back to that. So do you think that AI has kind of like got caught up in this generative AI thing? 
uh, rather than that broader data science topic? Well, I think the wonderful thing, I mean, of course, AI in its widest meaning has you know, multiple pros and cons. I guess the, the key pro is the fact that, you know, with all the data being collected at the moment, and, and that's only due to, to increase through 5G and ultimately 6G and, and everything, the ability of the human to actually digest all that information and to create actionable insight, that's kind of another buzz expression, but to create actionable insight from all that mm. data. The human, it's not beyond human capabilities. So therefore, generative AI is a way of creating sense from, from a sea of, a sea of data. And of course, the challenge really is how does a system actually do that? And how does it particularly relate to individual functions such as marketing or risk? Or how does it relate to particular industries? I think generative AI also will potentially be one of the great levelers insofar as that in my, in my second book, which I wrote back in 2018, I spoke about tier one and tier two industries and the tier one industries were quite obviously financial services and retail, but the tier two industries, typically construction, utilities, agriculture were very much being left behind. And I'm wondering whether generative AI will form a, a mythology, a catalyst, a platform to narrow the gap between tier one and tier two. So interesting stuff, you know, really. there's a lot going on. Okay. All right. Well, let, let's narrow the scope down a little then. So within FSI, you've been out busy advising financial services industry customers, the breadth of financial services, not necessarily just banking and insurance, but yeah, every part of the industry. So, you know, what, what are you seeing are the opportunities and maybe that the pitfalls of AI? I think the starting point also is that although AI is quite high on people's agendas, the reality is that organizations are still, still have to focus on the key imperatives of their own businesses, the ability to manage risk, the ability to acquire and retain customers, and the ability to reduce operational costs. And if AI or advanced analytic is a way of doing that, then all well and good. But, you know, what I've found sometimes is that Smaller organizations particularly have a technical capability and they throw it to the wall and say, and how can I make this work in a FSI industry or, or any other industry? And that for me is looking through the wrong end of the telescope. Organizations, FSI and others need to focus on what's important to them. Customer retention, customer satisfaction, management, reduction of operational costs, and if AI and advanced technologies is the way that they do that, then all well and good. But, you know, don't view AI as being the panacea to all of that. And it may well be that there are other capabilities other than AI, which at least take them down that, that journey, that, that journey of progress. I think also we mentioned it with a brief chapter, pre-call, of course, and I said that I still think organizations are suffering a pandemic hangover. That hangover is linked to just the uncertainty of the marketplace, it, it wasn't helped by the three big bank issues around Credit Suisse having to be acquired by UBS and Silicon Valley. And that can put the willies up many financial organizations. And that didn't just worry them in terms of what new technology they may wish to adopt, but also the issue of recruiting. And I'm seeing a knock-on effect around the willingness of financial organizations to recruit. Many organizations still seem to have a recruitment freeze on as we speak at the moment. It's one thing having this great vision of, you know, how do I use technology to, to forward my imperatives, but more importantly, how do I, how do I implement it? And who are the people who are going to do it? And, you know, there's, there's often quite a, a disconnect between organization or even individuals within an organization having a vision to implement technology and, and the practical application of those technologies. How, how do you operationalize? We can talk a little bit about stakeholder management, maybe a little, a little later, but the way in which organizations manage their individual internal and external stakeholders becomes particularly critical to how quickly they can implement analytics or 
advancedtechnology.ai. But there is a shortage of people, of course. You talked about the fundamental customer experience, improving, creating efficiencies, et cetera. Are there any use cases that you are seeing or you're involved in across the financial services sector where you feel AI lends itself best or and where people are, I guess, trying to shoehorn AI into their existing operational processes to make them more efficient? I think firstly, if you look at the emergence of, of you know, the whole chatbot agenda, and of course that has arisen really as a byproduct of banks closing local branches and, and encouraging the, the customer to self-service. And maybe actually that's one of the big agenda items across multiple industries, self-service. One of the big agenda issues, for example, is the closing down of small railway stations in the UK, where people are encouraged to self-service for their ticket tickets. And banks, of course, have the same issue, closing individual branches, encouraging people to get online or to use chatbots to, to help them. But I think the challenge is that not all chatbots, maybe no, no chatbots at the moment, are adequately advanced to replace a human. I think, I think it's very much a matter of coexistence at the moment rather than replacement. But, you know, I'm seeing some chatbot providers really moving forward, bolting AI capabilities into their chatbot solution. And I can only imagine that within, gosh, five to 10 years, that will have advanced significantly so that it will be difficult to, to recognize the difference between AI and human. Which takes us back to this whole Turing test thing. What else? Banks are very nervous, of course, around the risk environment, reg tech and AI infused reg tech is increasingly critical. And by AI infused, I think it's really a matter of using converging technologies to make sense of internal and external factors. Customer service, of course, becomes critical. Marketing, the ability to increasingly personalize the market proposition. That's why the marketing profession, I think, are very on the ball in terms of the use of advanced technologies. So there's a whole lot going on, plenty of opportunities, but I think the banking industry in many places still have some basics which they need to need to recover from. I think one interesting buy issue is, for example, in the insurance sector, the challenge of automation, AI-infused automation of vehicles and of ships, for example. And that's going to open up some very interesting debate around where liability arises. So therefore, the whole idea of a self-driving car, which has an accident, then where actually will that, will that liability rest? So, you know, I think the danger really is that we, we view AI as being some sort of a, a linear journey, when in fact, what we're actually seeing is, gosh, it's almost a, a paradigm shift in the way we're thinking. It's infusing everything to infuse areas we might prefer it not to infuse, but it will happen anyway. In some areas, it will work for the good, for the better. In some areas, you'll look back and think, well, was that such a good idea? You know, were the regulators really uncomfortable? <laughs> was it hype? You know, some people are saying, actually, you know, maybe in the next five years, we could find ourselves with another AI winter. And for those who aren't familiar, an AI winter is that, <laughs> that cold, shivering feeling you have when all the promises which have been made to you that technology will change the world don't actually happen. And the marketplace run away from the technology and say, actually, it was all marketing hype. It'll all be quantum by the time it gets to there, right? Well, quantum also fits into that. One of my favorite things I like watching is the Gartner hype cycle. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it kind of tells you. Yeah, I love them. You know, what quantum does not. And, and yep. of course, you know, it's only an indicator rather than a guarantee of what might or might not happen. But, you know, we do see that certain times, for example, a couple of years ago, you know, blockchain was all the rage and it just seems to have slipped a little off the, <laughs> off the agenda. Will AI follow the same path? I don't think so, but I think it may well be perhaps known as a different, in a different way. Robot automated automation perhaps could well be how, how AI increasingly manifests itself, shows itself in industry. 
I do love the Garner hype cycle. The peak of inflated expectation leaving to the trough of dis- disillusionment. I think it's, it's absolutely there. So, uh, look, you got me thinking, and you used the word paradigm. I, you know, I was curious, do you think we're the beginning of a new paradigm or somewhere else? And, and, and in particular, you got me thinking, I think we're in a society where the computer cannot be wrong. And we hold no, we give no leeway to whether the computer can be wrong or not, even though people can be wrong. So like the self-driving car, an individual, absolutely, you understand, you might not like it, but you understand could have an accident. You would not accept it from a car. The same with, you know, the AI models we're building. If, if a computer gives you wrong advice versus a person gives you wrong advice, there's a level of acceptance or not. So where, where do you think we might be then in that, in that as the paradigm? No, but Matthew, I think you, you've overlooked something. It's the issue of bias because, you know, computers oh, yes. are really only as good as the information which is put into it. And the book, which I, my lockdown project, AI in the Future of Public Services, talks in terms of how public services could be reinvigorated by the use of technology, bearing in mind that, you know, 20% of, of everybody in the world who are working in civilized nations are working in the public sector. So it's an area with potential for massive transformation. But the challenge really is that decisions are made based on the data which is provided. Decisions are made by computers or suggestions, predictions, based on the data provided. And if that data is actually biased, then the, the insights and the recommendations and the outcomes will also be biased. And you might say, well, you know, how do we get around that? And then, of course, you think, well, we do live in a world of haves and have not, insofar as that the haves will be the ones who have the technology which provides the data to the systems of AI. And the have nots are the guys and women who aren't digitally engaged, shall we say. And therefore, by default, the outcomes of the systems will have a natural bias towards particular demographic, particular type of people. That, of course, then takes you into geographical issues, of course. I wondered also about the issue of synthetic data. You know, maybe we can replace natural, real data, synthetic data. And the challenge then is, you know, how do we actually create synthetic artificial data without that bias? And that's a different technical project in its own right. But maybe the question, as you phrased it, Matthew, was wrong. You know, are we in an AI paradigm? Uh, Well, we're definitely in a data world at the moment. And AI is maybe just one of the, the manifestations of that rather than being the default definition, I suppose. It's maybe it's a little bit like if you see a steam train, is it all about the steam coming out of the funnel or is it really about the use of steam powered energy to drive machines and, and locomotives? So maybe AI is just a little bit of fluff, which is powering a data driven <laughs> I, I want to make that. I want to make that the episode title. AI, just a bit of fluff. Just a bit of fluff. <laughs> you know, I love you know, it. People all over the world throwing their arms up and saying, <laughs> "But that that raises, I guess, an interesting question." And and you're obviously sought out by a whole vast community of people to talk about AI. And I suspect they come to you. I, I'm. I guess I'm presupposing they come to you with. What's the best thing that we can do with AI? So they've already predisposed that AI is the answer. They're now looking to you know, reverse engineer that back into a problem set that they may, may have. <laughs> what advice do you, you know, what's your most common, most frequent advice that you give individuals that are seeking your import or companies? What advice do you give them around AI? Well, I think the first point, again, is what are they really trying to do? Are they trying to attack a particular problem? What is the imperative they're trying to solve? Are they doing it because they genuinely have a desire to, to make a difference within their organization? Or are they doing it because of a me too approach? The fact that there's a fear of being left behind. Of course, that takes you into interesting conversations around the advantage of being a first mover compared to the advantage of being a second mover. Well, the advantage of being a first mover is potentially all the competitive opportunities that you may be able to capture. But of course, first movers have a degree of risk. Whereupon second movers can, can make progress, perhaps not in quite such a dramatic way, but in a more certain, less risky way, which may be more appropriate to 
their own particular organization. So, you know, the first issue really is, you know, why do you want to do this? Are you doing it because of a need, an operational or, or marketing need, or are you doing it for maybe a vanity project? I mean, one reason that I, I do get concerned is if you know, somebody said, well, you know, I'd like to introduce an AI program into my organization. And I say, well, you know, who's going to be the sponsor? I am. Well, what happens if you leave or what happens if you change job or what happens if you can't get the funding? And the danger then is that there's no, no continuity. So any data transition, any AI transition or whatever you wish to call it needs to be part of an integrated sustainable program rather than a something which on the, which is on the wish list of an individual. So stakeholder management becomes absolutely critical. What's the advice? Oh, return on investment. You know, uh, one of the lines I've used through all the years, and it applies to pretty well, you know, most tech companies, it's the old Jerry Maguire line, you know, show me the money. And unless you can very clearly see a financial or, or maybe a non-financial, a soft benefit, if that's what you're chasing, then if you can't see the benefit, then you can't measure it. And if you can't measure it, then you open the door to all levels of criticism around, you know, did this project actually succeed? Did it succeed because you actually approached an area of low-hanging fruit, so it wasn't representative of, of you know, what might have been the real opportunity? And of course, in a perverse sort of way, organizations that can't actually measure their own performance adequately through very basic financial performance management tool, even going back as far as Excel, if they can't measure the delta, if they can't measure the benefit, then there's no sense in them pursuing an advanced analytic agenda unless they are managing basic analytics. So the two things really is why, and the second one is measuring the benefit. I'm just going to jump in with a slight variation on that because I think what you described there is there are those people that are trying to be the first mover, right? But they've still got to come back with a benefit because in the current climate, no matter what you're investing, where you're investing, there has to be a benefit. And, and you can measure, measure that and monetize that in many different ways. There are those, and I think we see this, where there's a FOMO. There's a fear of missing out. So they're all jumping into, we need to do AI of some description. Not necessarily generative AI or AI or large language models, but they're all, you know, we need to do something more than nothing because we don't want to be caught doing nothing because someone at a senior board level will ask us, what's our AI strategy? And if we can't answer that, that's a significant problem. You, from your own observation, are you worried about that frenetic pace of change that we're now seeing? And do, can I ask a, a question, which is one that we've come across before, which is, do you think organizations are acting responsibly? Well, let's unpack that. What do we mean by responsible? If the responsibility of an organization to its stakeholders is to build and grow stakeholder value, then it's quite responsible for them to adopt a AI program if it's going to build stakeholder value, because, you know, that's one of the reasons for them existing. The reality is that it's possible to build stakeholder value and reduce customer service or even increase cost. You only need to look at the UK Water Authority issues at the moment where stakeholder value has increased and the water infrastructure in the UK is probably at its worst since privatization. So, you know, stakeholder value and improvement in service and reduction in cost. From a responsible point of view, prudent organizations will be managing their, their risk, maybe even using risk management tools to ensure that individual and department and subsidies are acting responsibly. Are we moving too quickly? Well, I think the danger really is not to get sucked up by the hype, but rather to identify what is right for an individual organization and do things for the right reasons. We mentioned again a little earlier the, the, the issue of hype and how a lot of that is media driven. What, what kind of interesting for me sometimes is that in the public media, I see more reference to AI than I do sometimes in some of the trade journal and, and press releases. I think we, we need to be a little careful not to be maybe misled. I think organizations need to be objective more than ever before. They need to do the right thing. Because of course, one of the challenges is, is if you do the wrong thing, actually there are tremendous reputational issues 
which can affect you, which can take a long time to get over. If you choose the wrong supplier or the wrong capability, some of those issues become very difficult to, to unwind afterwards. Then, of course, you know, there is the challenge of the limited number of players in the, in the space who actually can offer competent solutions, really. So, you know, there's a lot going on. Effective due diligence also helps with the, the issue of managing responsibility, really. You know, why did you choose that particular firm? And if it was because, gosh, we had the sales guy who came in and he was just so great. And he, he told us such a great story and he gave us all these case studies and we're just like those other companies. But of course, kind of, if you adopt a more critical point of view, you might want to ask yourself, you know, are the case studies really typical of my own organization? Do they really represent my own situation? Were the people different? Were the strategies different? So, you know, one of the, one of the joys, one of the pleasures of being an independent consultant, as I am now, is that you, you do have the ability to, to step back and be a little more objective about than towing the corporate line. I, and then I find very helpful. And, and I kind of look back sometimes to employee, employers and I think, you know, you just kind of overcook that a little bit. But hey, you know, celery. Yeah, surely not. Surely not. What I, I absolutely got from you and really resonated with me there is, is you know, our industry, FS, the FSI industry is built on trust. And the reputational damage you can do by adopting something too quickly takes a long, ter- long time for that to be forgotten or, or proven to be just, just, a, just a quirk. There was an interesting article by Swiss Re, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And that drew a comparison between countries who were advanced in recognizing and adopting AI and data-driven solutions compared to those who weren't and how that links into the matter of trust. And it found that those always-thinking countries tend to have lower levels of trust in AI and data than, for example, countries a little like India, by way of example. That was a, an example by Swiss Re themselves and Nigeria, countries which were less progressive around the use of AI, but appear to have extremely high levels of trust in the likely outcome. Interesting geographical issues going on. It's almost like you knew I was going to ask this next question. It's almost like it. But um, you know, so I'm curious to know, do you see much variation geographically in that, uh, the, the adoption of these advanced technologies, AI technologies and approaches? And, and has that changed significantly you know, in the last you know, 12, 18 months since, since the kind of that AI noise has been much louder? I've had the, the joy of doing quite a lot of traveling. I think I've worked in, in, in about 40 or 50 countries over the past while. And, you know, I'm, I'm able to actually look at what's happening in different territories and really measure for my own personal view on, on progress. I know that China as a country is not appreciated as much as they used to be in terms of a relationship, but I was very interested around the way that China are using data to manage finances and identify movement. A very interesting example I saw was the ability to walk into a bar and have facial recognition, identify who you are, and to be able to ident- be able to link that to your bank account. And therefore you would be able to pay your bargain based on facial recognition. And that's kind of interesting because, and, and also, you know, some of the things we're seeing at the moment around facial recognition of moving crowds, for example, to identify whether you have villains walking through high Park. Some of these things have been around, around for quite a while. So we, we ignore what's happening in different countries to our, to our peril. Chinese example is interesting also because of the sheer volume of people there and the number of technologists. So you, you think in terms of maybe in the UK, a startup might say, well, we're going to do a, a pilot scheme for something and we're going to maybe look at 30,000 individuals in a year and run the pilot and see what the benefit is. In China, you might do 30,000 people in a day. So the, you know, the scale of it becomes different. That's not to say that China is a panacea, but if you look at other areas in the Far East, Malaysia, for example, where you have a much shorter decision chain and therefore the ability to talk to a CFO and get the attention then of the CEO very quickly, rather than 
in the West where it seems you have to go through a whole raft of gatekeepers to actually get to the, the man who's making the decision. Different territories have different behaviors and, you know, that is driving different rates of progress. So, you know, we talk about AI, it's not a homogeneous topic. It's not being adopted equally around the globe. There are pros and cons around how it's being adopted. It's really quite a, a chessboard, really. I got to follow up to this, but you got me thinking then that, so facial recognition in the bar, you can, I thought you were going to say, I recognize from your calendar, you met with these people today. Therefore, I'm suggesting you have this drink to start with because you might need it more <laughs> than your normal one of wanting this one. And um, by the way, you know, we've got a promotion on. So, yeah. So, uh, anyway, I was kind of, maybe I was leaping ahead in use cases. But what are your thoughts on, on some of the emerging regulation then? You know, there's been a big call for regulations, uh, again, across the press or by the, the big tech companies. And, the, and then you see things such as the Emerging AI Act in Europe. I've been reading through some of that around some of the guardrails they're trying to put in place. And so I don't know whether some of it feels a little bit too late and maybe unenforceable. I, you know, what, what's your thinking on? on the, like the AI act and, and, and what might need to, to happen there. I'm not confident that technology companies can self-regulate. I think that they have too many other driving agendas to prevent them from self-regulating efficiently. So that by default suggests that you need an external arrangement, which effectively lays down the, the rules of engagement fused to a better expression. Some of them exist already. I mean, the whole GDPR thing has been around a while and that is very effective, especially when, when rather punitive fines are imposed on those organizations who fail to manage their data. I think from an EU point of view and, and elsewhere in the world, what we are seeing is that the, the progress is maybe outpacing legislative and governmental regulation, really. But I don't think the industry and the tech sector should slow down because of the absence of re regulation. I think there's a real genuine need for the regulators to pick the pace. And how they do that will be interesting. You know, are we looking at regulation of AI across the board, given that we said at the top of the call that, you know, it has many multiple elements and many multiple components. So, you know, are you trying to regulate steam coming out of the top of that locomotive or are you actually really regulating individual sectors? Should it be for the banking regulators to offer particular advice as to how AI and advanced analytics are used within that particular sector? And therefore, by actually maybe focusing down and narrowing down, then you're actually creating bite-sized portions of regulation. You know, they always say the way to eat an elephant, spoonful by spoonful. And, you know, maybe the future of regulation has to move away from the massive, you know, how do we regulate the entire data world in an AI context into, you know, how do we regulate robo automation in three to five years? You know, what are the rules? What are the, what are the methodologies? So there's a lot yet to do. It's that, that thing about where's the, where's the puck traveling to rather than where is it now? Right. That's that, that's, um, sure. You know, so, you know, I don't think we need to be rocket scientists to identify the the, the direction of travel, you know, we, we don't entirely know where it's going to end up, but the rules, some rules can be created, which are helpful, but I am mindful that if you go back several years to the whole issue of solvency too, which was regulation for the insurance industry around having adequate capital, it was all always meant to be a set of guidelines rather than a rule book, but the guidelines were sufficiently generic as to force individual companies to ask specific questions. And it moved away from being a set of guidelines into becoming, you know, this massive tome, this massive Encyclopedia Britannica of, of, of documentation. And, you know, the vision, the intention was correct. The implementation ultimately failed to the point that people are now saying, you know, what is Solvency 3 and how do we, how do we move on from this? And I wonder whether from an AI regulation point of view, we need to step back and and look at the lessons learned from that type of regulation and see how they can be adopted 
by individual sectors. I think particular professions did. I think the marketing profession, who created this whole concept of digital marketing, for example, get the use of digitalization and the use of data and the use of personalized marketing and content marketing. They get it. But if you look at other industries, if you go to a professional institution representing financial professionals, they kind of, they, they appear to be viewing AI as being something extra to their existing agenda rather than at the absolute heart of their agenda. But the reality is that you call it AI or call it advanced analytics or whatever, it's just going to be with us. You know, the, the proverbial genie is out of the bottle and there's no way we're going to put it, put it back in. Even with tighter regulation, there will still be a degree of it. So therefore the whole concept of data and analytics and AI needs to be absolutely central to the thinking of all professions and probably all industries, to be honest. In my second book, I actually I included a table on professions which were likely to be affected by data and analytics. And it was, it was borrowed from, I think, Oxford Brooks or whatever, uh, the university. And they, they had a scoreboard of those professions which would be affected and not. And of course, ballet dancing was pretty low on the agenda in terms of being affected by AI. Well, if I'm sure an insurance underwriter, then, you know, I, I shouldn't take out a 25 year mortgage, but you know, everybody will be affected by it. And I guess one of the key messages for me was that all of us, be it within industries or outside, all of our stakeholders in this, we can't stick by and just watch what's happening. We, we can't allow ourselves to be victim in terms of data revolution, this whole AI revolution. But, you know, as stakeholders, we are entitled to express an opinion. And that opinion can be, you know, yes, I agree with this. Or no, you know, this is a worrying thing and we have to have greater regulation and, 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 and organization. But we owe it to ourselves. If you look at the whole argument of, of AI-induced or infused RPA, robotic process automation, and the rest. You know, the potential for job losses will be measured in its millions. And then the knock-on effect of that to governments and pension schemes and retirement and all those mm. things are, are really substantial. So, you know, my encouragement really is, you know, to get involved in the debate. And that's why, you know, as well as talking to, to professionals and to executives and companies, you know, I find myself talking to the local, you know, Rotary Club and talking to them about what is the future of, of AI for them. And they say, well, actually, I'm too old to be worried about this. That's not the case. Because again, if you look at aging demographic, you know, think when you have a society which is automated and dependent, for example, on advanced mobile phones and, 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 and remote devices, if they can't even see the keyboards or if they can't, if they can't work the system, how do we make some of these things human proof rather than get swept along in the in the wave of technology so an interesting thing there because we talked about I, I don't think people look at it in terms of the social economic impact of the loss of jobs and what that means from you know personal pensions in terms of tax in terms of government there was an article this year by goldman's and goldman's was predicting that as a result of ai um, there yeah, up to 300 million jobs could be lost globally or degraded or changed in a significant way that the job no longer resembled the original job. So I don't think people look at that. I'm going to change tack slightly, Tony, just for the, for the last question in, in this section. So across the industry, financial services industry and technology, what are you most excited about? Uh, what do you see that excites you? And, and what are you personally working on right now? I think the increased level of engagement excites me. And although earlier I was critical a little bit of, of regular media, the mainstream media, having, you know, AI on the front page or, or on, on the web page, it's not quite rubble raising, but it, but it's kind of raising it, creating fears and, and worries, which perhaps are beyond what is necessary. At the same time, it is raising awareness and it is part of that wider journey towards becoming familiar with data and analytics and AI and normalizing it, really. Maybe it's part of the normalization process. And hey, you know, we, if, if that's all part of that hype curve where what we're going to find is that we are 
you're on the, the first peak of the height curve and then we'll get to the top and actually it doesn't do what it says. But on the second run, maybe in five or 10 years time, when we've actually figured out really how best to use it and what are the controls, you know, that might all help in the, in the wider process going forward. So let's think about it as being a, a bit of a marathon rather than a, a 100 meter sprint. What am I working on at the moment? Well, I, I mentioned my fifth book, which is partly done on paper, but partly in my head as well. And, and that is about the future of aging, maybe AI and the future of aging. And of course that takes you into interesting issues around the, the failure of the public sector in the care home situation and how potentially that might be offset perhaps by more people living at home to an older age and therefore having devices in the home to monitor medications and movement. Even in, in Japan at the moment, they, they are using robotic care home helpers to hold conversations with, with old people or, or people suffering from dementia. And I kind of think a little bit about what's the impact of that. You know, how will, how will banking change in the future reflecting this aging demographic, which is very much the elephant in the, in the corner of the room. We have fewer young people, more older people. What does it all mean for them? You know, how will pensions be invested? All those things. So AI in the future of aging, how does it end? I just don't know. Maybe that's what makes it exciting. You know, I've been accused sometimes of being a bit of a futurist and, you know, a futurist is somebody who maybe says improbable or unlikely things. And it's a little short of being a science fiction writer. I was reading a science fiction story the other day about, uh, about some guy who's not feeling very well and he goes to the doctor and the doctor looks at him and says, well, actually you're mainly robot. And it's sort of, he actually goes home and he opens his, his stomach and discovers inside that he's mainly devices. Will it ever happen? Well, biometrics is, is already high on the agenda. Who knows? Who knows? And that's what makes it interesting and scary and, and exciting and stimulating and all those things. Fabulous. Fabulous. So then, crystal ball time. Let's move on to the crystal ball. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have, a crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. I have no idea where you're going to go with this, given all the topic we've already just covered. So what do you think will be one of the most significant game-changing technologies for 2023 and beyond? And how do you think that's going to help or hinder financial services? And you can't say, listen to what we just covered. <laughs> I think there'll be two big topics. I think the first one will be RPA and the increased automation of processes. And that will link to chatbots in some way. So you'll, you'll be able to have a conversation with a chatbot supplemented by a human, and that will push you into a system, an intelligent system, an AI infused system to give you a, a customized solution for, for what you're looking for. And that may be in financial services. It may well be in, in other services as well. So I think that, I think that can be hot on the agenda. I think the challenge will be how quickly that will happen. The pundits are saying, you know, automated or robotic uh, RPA will, is something which will become mainstream probably in five to 10 years. But is that too short a horizon? No, I think timelines are really interesting because sometimes if you, if you look at the progress you actually made yesterday or 12 months ago, it's kind of sometimes too hard to identify actually you know, what difference has happened, what, you know, what the Delta has been. But if you look at five, five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago, even just in the, the laptop or, or device that you're looking at, then you can see that enormous difference between where you were and what you have now. So, you know, timelines, timelines can be misleading, but I think RPA will be the hot topic. And, and I think many organizations and many major players are seeing this already. Yeah. Yeah. A uh, very fair one, very fair, and, and within grasp, right? Oh, absolutely within grasp. And I think also the interesting thing about RPA is that it has a much clearer OI calculation. It's, it's much easier yeah. to look at the, the, the cost of using human capabilities to carry out a particular function, particularly a routine or repetitive function, and then look at the cost of 
an automated function and then seeing what the delta is. And as the, as the pressure will continue to be on by many companies to reduce cost, then RPA, I think, is, is one of the areas of low-hanging fruit. All right, super. So let's move on to what it's all about, really, and that's the lightning round. Uh, we usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to the super awesome bonus lightning round. The lightning round begins now. This is the bit where Brian has his most fun. <laughs> and let's, you know, so look, uh, genuinely, a pass is really okay. We may heckle you at your next stage appearance uh, for the answer at some point in the future. But, you know, a uh, pass is really okay. So let, let me start with then, what's your favorite book or movie? We've got a house full of books at the moment. We just seem to collect books and sometimes I never really get past the introduction and then decide actually that it wasn't what I wanted to read. The one I'm reading at the moment is my favorite one because it's the one I'm reading at the moment. It's the one I've chosen out of the book cake. <laughs> and rather oddly, it's the biography of Dennis Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher's husband, because I was really oh, wow. interested. I was really interested at seeing what was happening behind the throne. And, you know, Thatcher, you know, like her or loathe her, made an amazing change, transformation to the UK political and industrial system. But I was really interested by knowing, you know, what Dennis did in the evening and how he guided her and how he kept his sanity. And actually, maybe there were lessons <laughs> to be learned that by, you know, seeing how you know, he wasn't swept along in this whole political transformational agenda. Rather, he was quite happy to go for a game of golf and, and have a gin and tonic or whatever and, and, and choose things over and not overreact to, to, to situations or, or incidents. So that's my favorite one at the moment. Okay, my go. Who is your mentor or who have you been most inspired by? Again, a tricky question, Brian, because that assumes that there's only ever been one mentor you know, throughout my entire career. And, and what I see is that, you know, different people have provided me with guidance and, and mentoring at different stages. And that could be any time from, you know, the, the first time I was encouraged to get up on the stage and talk to the, the person who said, you are going to be digitally active and we will have your social media presence as one of your metrics on your annual review. And I mentioned at the beginning, I was terrified of of talking in public and, and, and all these things. The idea of actually having my income influenced by the number of times I, I did a blog post or whatever was quite challenging, but again, you know, a bit like the proverbial riding of a horse, you know, once you get on it, you're on it and you know, you just kind of get used to it. Wow. Here's some interesting, that's a sort of like interesting metrics. Yeah. I think even today, you know, in this late stage of my career, I don't always assume that I'm, I'm without the need for mentoring and support and guidance. But interestingly, that guidance often comes from people that are younger than me rather than the same age or older than me. And that's fine because it's their world, maybe more than mine now. And I'm, I sometimes welcome having that stimulation, maybe the stimulation of naivety sometimes, but that's another matter altogether. But the idea that people can Say, well, well, have you, have you thought about this or what's the impact of that or, or whatever? And of course, you know, silly little things happen. You know, when I wrote my book on banking, I dedicated it to my grandchildren. And the acknowledgement was, or dedication was to my grandchildren who probably will never use cash. And, you know, within five to 10 years, yep. that's kind of where we are. Where yeah, we'll be. yeah. Excellent. So if you had a time machine, would you go back in time or into the future? Gosh, I, I love to cheat and do both because I, I went back to my old university recently and it was kind of, I was doing a lecture on data and analytics and it was kind of interesting to see these young people sat in the same lecture theater as I sat in, you know, 40, 45 years ago and to think about what was going through their mind and also to think about what might've been going through my mind at the time. So it was kind of interesting going back and doing that. But I'd also be really interested in going forward as well and seeing whether some of these predictions I, I, I've made or suggestions I've made about the future will ever come to pass. You know, will we have robots in the home? You know, will delivery vans be automated? Will that actually happen? And if I got it wrong, 
why did I get it wrong and by how much? So I don't know. I'm just greedy. I'd love to go backwards and forwards. <laughs> Tony, you say you spend a lot of time traveling. So boat, train or plane? I used to like, like airports, but now I hate them. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting. We were talking earlier about kind of self-service and the good old days of being able to go to the airport and try and squeeze a 24 kilo bag onto the plane by smiling at the, the person working on the, on the service desk. Oh, now gone. You know, you, you, you put it on the automated machine and it, it prints you out a sticker and, and sends you down to the, the area that you pay for excess baggage. So don't like flying, don't like driving too much anymore, which is super congested. Be interested to see how, how and if smarter cities and towns ever take off. So I guess really the final option, third option is probably train, the ability to sit on a train and sometimes to work, mainly to look out the window and see the world go by and to, and to reflect on stuff. All right. Last time you used cash, when and what for? We had the local carnival last week in our village. And part of the carnival is a procession of all the school kids and various charities and the rest. And they're, they're sat on the backs of lorries and there's a, an award for the, the best float and everybody goes down to the village green. And part of that event is digging around and finding all the loose change you have and just throwing it in a bucket and it all goes into the local charity, the community charity. So the last time I used cash was, you know, throwing money into the bucket. But the, the other impact of that is the importance of community. And I think we, we partly learned that during the lockdown when we, you know, communities were broken up because of the, an inability sometimes to, to get together. But also in many ways, it brought communities together. I spoke to neighbors who I've only kind of waved at and, and that was a positive thing. One of the few positive things of the lockdown. So cash, mm. it was being able to root around pockets and little dishes to find 10 pences and 20 <laughs> and 50 pences to throw in a bucket to, to some local village good cause. My favorite question, Tony, and given you wanted to be a rock star when you was younger, you have to sing karaoke. What song do you sing? So a few years ago for my birthday, it may well have been a, of a, of a big event birthday. My son bought me a bass guitar and it was all part of this grand plan that I would form a band with all the Winkleys of the neighborhood and we kind of do something on those special events. So, you know, if playing the bass is part of it, then it would have to be a, a singer who plays the bass and it would probably be Sting and it would probably be something from the police. I don't know. I'm not sure which. Cool. Okay. So the most important question on the whole list, and it's because it's Lenka's favorite. <laughs> if you were an ice cream, what flavor would you be? Oh, hard, hard, hard. I'm tempted to say vanilla, which is one of my favorites, but, but being described as being vanilla sounds a bit superficial. So I think my favorite would be probably Moreno cherry because of the, of the rich, the richness and the texture of the taste and the little hidden surprises you actually find as you're licking into your ice cream, which bring you delight and excitement at the same time. So Marino Cherry. Wow. That's a well thought out answer. Yeah, that's a well thought out answer. Right. So <laughs> la la last question, what piece of career advice do you wish you could give to your younger self? Again, that's a hard one. You know, I, I think I sometimes, you know, in quite a moment, so I, I wonder what it would be like to, to go back in time and look through a window and see this young young guy, either with a young family or before then, and just seeing him trying to carve his way in the world. If I, if I could tap on the window and say, here's a bit of advice for you, son, I'd probably say, don't worry, it'll all be all right. And that's probably what I would say to, to anybody, you know, don't overreact, don't be frightened, don't be frightened of AI, don't be frightened of change, create the future, don't be a victim of the future. And I think it's by creating the future, then you become an active participant and you become a stakeholder, you become a thought leader, you become an influencer, but you feel personally more satisfied that you've actually added to the conversation rather than just being a bystander. Okay. So you got the hairs on my arm stood on end on that one, Tony. That's actually one of the best, A, it's one of the best answers I've heard to that question, but also it's a fabulous way to end our podcast today. That was, uh, don't worry. I think uh, absolutely amazing. So, look, Tony, thank you so much 
for your for your time taking us through the topic, your advice, your counsel, and 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 the learnings. I I, I have learned so much today. How can our listeners learn more about you and what you get up to? Well, firstly, I've got a fairly unusual surname. So therefore, that means it's quite easy to find me. I, I said to my kids, you know, with a surname like ours, you'll be remembered either for the good things you do or for the terrible things you do. So the advice to them was make sure it's, you're remembered for the right things. So you can find me easily, of course, on LinkedIn, but I, I've also got a, a website, tonybibia.co.uk. But just put me into a search engine, you'll find me. You'll find me probably easier than I would like, but hey. <laughs> I want to be remembered for the good things. Fabulous. Thank you again, Tony. It's been absolute uh, fabulous session with you today. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Okay, my pleasure. We'll also have links to Tony in our show notes. As always, if we can help you in any way, please reach out to us on LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter or threads at Matthew Owen and our podcast on Twitter at dbtbpod. And you can find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. If you like our podcast and can leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcasts, that'd be really appreciated. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or would wish to appear as a future guest, please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care.